Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I am a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www. A-A-A-A-I.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is our first patient-focused recording. We are going to discuss timely information to help patients, the general public, and healthcare professionals better understand how to manage asthma and allergies over the busy holiday season. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Mitch Grayson, who is a professor of pediatrics, the chief of the Division of Allergy and Immunology, and the Grant Morrow Endowed Professor of Pediatric Research at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Grayson currently serves on the Board of Directors for the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, as well as the American Board of Allergy and Immunology. Dr. Grayson is an accomplished researcher, and his interests lie in understanding the role that viral infections play in the development of allergic diseases. Today, Dr. Grayson has graciously agreed to join us to discuss how anyone with asthma and allergies can navigate the busy holiday season while maintaining optimal health. Dr. Grayson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, and welcome to our show. Thanks, Dr. Stukas. Glad to be here. Great. Now, before we discuss important information surrounding asthma and allergies, what is your favorite part of the holiday season? Probably when it's over. Um, no, I, <laughs> I, I enjoy, I enjoy uh, the being able to get together with family and friends and, and all the fun associated with that. I'm not sure I enjoy so much the the buying gifts and all that, although I used to when I was younger. <laughs> it's certainly a busy time for all of us. But even more importantly, what is your favorite type of holiday cookie or treat? You know, um, I try not to have too many treats during the holidays, but if I have to have a, a treat, I actually like these great bars my wife makes. They're called Nanaimo bars. I don't really know what's in them because I don't cook, but they're awesome. Okay. Is it more of a chocolatey sweet type of... Uh... Yeah, it's like a chocolatey raspberry or berry something. I don't... My wife will kill me if she hears this. I don't know what's actually in them, but they're they're really good. Oh, all okay. right. Well, thank you for sharing that. It sounds sounds delicious. Okay. Now, for our listeners, let's start with some basics to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Can you describe for us the symptoms that go along with asthma and allergic rhinitis? Sure. Um, Let's break it up into what the symptoms are of asthma and the symptoms of allergic rhinitis separately. So allergic rhinitis is really um, problems with your nose and your eyes. Well, it's allergic rhinoconjunctivitis. So you would have sneezing, runny nose, nasal congestion. Um, Your eyes could be itching. They could run. That's more of your allergic rhinitis stuff. Asthma is more of a difficulty with breathing, uh, getting air in and out of your lungs, not so much up in the nose, but actually in your chest. 
the best way of explaining that kind of symptoms is if you try and breathe through a straw, which I don't encourage everyone to do. But that inability to sort of be able to get air in and out of your lungs, that's what you have with asthma. So it manifests itself with wheezing, uh, difficulty breathing, not being able to keep up with other kids or other people when you're exercising and running around. Uh, and then you can have cough along with that. And actually, you can have cough with both allergic rhinitis and asthma. Okay. And in your experience, is can these um, both of these conditions manifest both seasonally or throughout the year? Yeah. So they both can happen uh, throughout the year, what we would call uh, uh, perennial disease, or you could have it just seasonally, say, if you were just allergic to ragweed, just in the ragweed season. Um, and both of these diseases can occur together or they could be separate. And in general, how can someone with asthma best maintain control over their symptoms? Well, I, the key thing with someone with asthma is that you really should not have any symptoms. And if you are having any, you really should see your doctor. There are medications that are available uh, that will help treat asthma, especially we have two different types of medications we use. One is called a reliever and one is called a controller. The reliever medication, uh, often it's albuterol. It's something that's used acutely when you're having symptoms. But if you need that kind of medicine, then you need to be on a controller medicine and your doctor needs to give you this other medicine that you take every day to keep your symptoms in control. The other thing to do if you have asthma, and I think this will be relevant when we talk about more about holiday-related stuff, is to try and avoid being in situations where you're exposed to triggers. So knowing your triggers and then avoiding them is an additional piece to that. So it sounds like for anybody who really has persistent and recurrent symptoms or even severe flare-ups of their asthma that they would benefit from using a daily controller medicine. Absolutely. My general rule of thumb is if you need that reliever more than two times per week, you should be on a controller medication. Honestly, if you've hit the emergency room or the urgent care with, with asthma symptoms once in the year, I think you should be on a controller medication. And that segues nicely to our next question. And we know that asthma symptoms can really occur at any time. And we'll talk more about triggers in a few moments. And nobody really wants to miss out on the holiday season when they're visiting with friends and relatives and, and trying to have a good time. But what are some of the indications that somebody with asthma should call their doctor or seek evaluation at a healthcare facility? Well, obviously, if you're requiring that reliever medication more than once or twice a week, you, you need to seek medical attention. If you feel that you can't breathe, if it's not, if if you have the reliever medication and it's not working, uh, are clearly indications that you need to see uh, medical attention immediately. If you find that you're waking up at night, short of breath, or needing your reliever, again, that's a sy symptom that your asthma is not under control and you need better medication. Uh, and then, if you're not, if you were able, let's say, to exercise, and now you're not able to exercise because Either you're getting short of breath or you're coughing or whatever, that would be another indication I would say you need to see your, your doctor. So anything that sort of takes away from being able to live your life the way you normally live your life would suggest that your asthma is getting worse. Now, if you've never been evaluated for your asthma, realistically, people with asthma should be able to live normal lives. So if you're not able to do what everybody else around you does, um, that because of problems with breathing, that would be an indication that you should also see your uh, provider and, and, and get looked at for whether or not you have asthma or whether your asthma is under control or not. And for people with asthma that feel that they're under good control and aren't having frequent symptoms, uh, should they still see their medical provider on a regular basis? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, you have to remember the reason why they're not having symptoms is because they're being treated. Uh, we don't have a treatment for asthma, unfortunately, that makes it go away. So what we have is treatments that will control your asthma, and that's why we talk about asthma control, but we don't have that magic bullet that we can give you and your asthma just goes away and you don't have the disease anymore. So for people that are being treated with a controller and not having any symptoms, that's great, but you do want to follow up with your doctor annually or more frequently, depending on the severity of your asthma, you negotiate that with your provider so that you are on the right dose of that controller medication. You're not getting too much or too little, uh, and your asthma remains under control. Okay. And so switching gears back to allergic rhinitis, uh, can you touch upon some of the mainstays of treatment for people who have uh, either seasonal or year-round uh, allergies? Sure. So when we talk about the nasal symptoms and nasal allergies, the mainstay of treatment amounts to a couple of things. The first thing is obviously avoidance. So if you know you're allergic to something and you don't get exposed to it and it, it, it is something that you can avoid, then you tend not to have allergic disease. And so allergic rhinitis in particular tends to be better in those situations. When that's not enough, we then usually use an antihistamine. Uh, and usually we use a non-sedating antihistamine with or without a nasal steroid. And that's usually the mainstay of the pharmacotherapy of, of allergic rhinitis. Now, if you see an allergist, the next step up we would use is allergy shots or what we call immunotherapy. Uh, and that is amounting to giving people uh, injections of the things to which they're allergic, slowly building it up so they don't have a reaction. Uh, and we find that if we do that, after about a year, your allergic rhinitis symptoms may very well go away. And about a third of people, they go away completely, and they don't need these other medicines, the, the nasal steroid or the antihistamine. About a third of people get some relief but not complete relief and still need some additional medicine, and about a third of people really don't get any relief, and we would stop their allergy shots if, if that's the case. The, the nice thing about allergy shots is that they also will help with asthma if you have both allergic rhinitis and asthma. They may help with asthma on their own, although the data for that are not as clean uh, or clear. Um, and there is some thought that over time with allergy shots, if you've treated people for three to five years and you stop, that they'll continue to get benefit from the, the allergy shots beyond that. So that's sort of the, the paradigm with how we treat allergic rhinitis. But again, we start with the idea of avoiding the things that are your triggers. We then talk about the available uh, pharmacologic therapies, which would be the antihistamine and the nasal steroid, and then beyond that, can we turn off this disease, and that's where we go to the allergy shots. And you mentioned the role of an allergist. Can you just maybe back up a, a step and help people better understand, you know, when should somebody seek evaluation by an allergist, or when would, you know, when is allergy testing helpful and indicated? So uh, the time when you would want to be seen by an allergist is really a couple of reasons. Number one would be that you want to know what it is that you might be allergic to. Uh, and that's where allergists have the ability to do skin testing. They can evaluate those results and, and really give you some idea of what the triggers are that are setting off your disease. I think in addition to that, anytime somebody who has allergic rhinitis who is not controlled at the level of an antihistamine and a nasal steroid or feels they want additional uh, evaluation, that would be the time in which I would say it's, it's worth going to a specialist, in particular an allergist. And then in the case of asthma, in, in general, if anyone is on a controller medication and still having any symptoms, uh, if you're having, a, 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 having to go to the urgent care or emergency room, if you've been hospitalized for asthma, uh, if you are not 
still controlled on a low-dose controller medicine, I recommend at that point you see an allergist. Again, the point of it is some of it is to change the pharmacotherapy, but some of it is actually to determine what those triggers are and find out, oh, maybe the cat that you have in your house is a bad idea. Uh, and so that's where I think the allergist can be very helpful for, for asthma as well. Okay, thank you. Um, now, you've mentioned a couple of times, and there are multiple different medications that we use to treat asthma and allergic rhinitis, and we know that you know taking medicine every day, it, it's really hard and challenging for most people. Our normal schedules can be thrown way off track uh, over the busy holiday season for a variety of reasons. Uh, how important is it for people to continue their normal medication regimen if they have asthma and allergies, and do you have any advice to help them? Yeah, so I think it is critical that they maintain their their uh, regimen, but I agree, it's very difficult. We don't live our lives taking drugs twice a day. That's not how we want to want to do things. What I tend to tell patients is one thing we do do pretty well with, for whatever reason, is brushing our teeth. Uh, and if you could tie your medication times to sort of when you brush your teeth and leave it, if you have an inhaler, leave it near your toothbrush kind of thing, it reminds you to to take those to take your medicine at the same time you're brushing your teeth well not at the same time but around the same time um and that way it, it if you could tie it to the things you do every day you're more likely to do it um the other thing people can do now everybody has smartphones you can always program your smartphone to remind you to do it there's there are i think apps that will actually help you remember to take your medicine um and anything that you could do that just sort of keeps that into your daily routine, that's the key part. Now, it gets hard, as you mentioned, as we get near the holidays and things like that, your routines start to get messed up. You start to have to go traveling and things like that. So again, you have to work extra hard to remember to do these things. Part of the problem we have, though, with some of the medicines we use is that not taking them doesn't immediately lead to increased symptoms. And so you can forget to take your medicine for several days and it might be five days or a week before you start having symptoms. And suddenly you don't realize that connection between those medicine, between the medicine you've been taking every day and the lack of symptoms. And so all you know is now your symptoms have come back and you've forgotten you're taking your medicine. So, again, I, I try to tell patients, remember that there's not that direct correlation. And as a matter of fact, when you start your medicine again, it may take five to seven days before it starts to prevent those symptoms. Uh, and this is in asthma, we're talking about controller medicines, and for uh, allergic rhinitis, we're talking about nasal steroids. And, and that delay can be a problem because, again, you don't see the sudden gratification of, oh, I took my medicine and I feel better, and, and, or I stopped taking it and I feel worse. So it, it is a problem. And, again, I just being cognizant of it is the most important thing. Well, thank you for highlighting that. I, I agree. I think that's an important connection that a lot of people uh, try to make of, uh, if I take this medicine, I should feel the effect immediately. But unfortunately, the medicines we use uh, to control asthma and environmental allergies don't always work that way. Now, let, let's go back to some of the, the points we talked about earlier in our conversation. What are some common triggers that can make asthma and or allergies worse, uh, particularly during the holiday season? Well, so the holiday season in general for most of the country is not a time when we have pollen. Uh, that's not entirely true for the South, but, but for most of the, the U.S., uh, your pollinating plants are not pollinating now because it's below freezing. Um, and so we really are talking at this time of the year with the indoor allergens that people are being exposed to. So those are your furred pets, your cats, your dogs, um, your mice or rats if you happen to have them. Um, 
as well as dust mites. And we could talk individually about these if you want. Uh, and then there's also the risk of uh, exposure to mold. And I'm sure we're going to talk about Christmas trees at some point. Um, because, again, you, you're indoors, you're closing up your house, uh, and so your indoor allergens you're being exposed to more and more. Okay, so that's great to talk about some of the allergic triggers. Are there any other triggers around this time of year um, that can contribute to worsening asthma or allergy symptoms? Uh, sure. So in addition to the to the IgE-mated allergic triggers, there are things like, uh, well, there, there are irritants. So the irritants that people get exposed to, again, you can get exposed to these any time of the year, but because we're closing up our houses, you're more likely to get that exposure inside. Things like perfumes and, and scents, um, strong scents will set off people, not from an allergic reaction, but it's just an irritant reaction. Uh, then we also have people, you know, having fires in their fireplace and things like that. And, and remember that smoke is a very strong uh, irritant as well. And obviously, if there's someone who's actually smoking, that's going to make it even worse. Whether they're smoking a regular cigarette or they're vaping or whatever, you're still getting you're still getting release of these things that will irritate uh, people. And people with allergies tend to be irritated at a lower dose than those without. And you've devoted your research career to better understanding how viral infections early in life can lead to the development of allergic conditions, but can you comment a little bit about how viruses in the wintertime can actually make asthma symptoms worse? Sure, um, although it's not necessarily right around the holiday time, but, but viral infections uh, have clearly been associated with exacerbating asthma. Uh, and it's important to note also that what we're talking about are things like rhinovirus. These are the viruses of the common cold, there's a bunch of other viruses that are, that are similar. Um, and like I just said, the common cold. So if you have allergic rhinitis, you'll notice your symptoms are very similar to that of having a cold. So in addition to asthma symptoms that where a virus can cause your asthma to exacerbate, oftentimes asthma, or, or not asthma, oftentimes the viral infection will make it cold-like symptoms. You won't know whether it's you're, you're having a cold or you're having uh, your allergic rhinitis. And in general, what we tend to see is when you get a viral infection, uh, if you get cold-like symptoms, that's usually in the beginning of the viral infection. Once that starts to wane or go down, usually five days or five, seven days after the initial viral infection, that's when we start to see people have problems with their asthma. And again, it, it, you should have an, if you have asthma, you should have an asthma action plan. These usually have a green zone, a yellow zone, and a red zone. And often, if you have a cold, you move into that yellow zone uh, and you start to do whatever additional treatments your your provider has asked you to do, um, trying to avoid actually having the exacerbation due to the viral infection, which, like I said, usually those peak 7 to 10 days after the initial symptoms of the cold. Okay. Uh, now, you mentioned Christmas trees, and I know anybody who goes online, um, they can see uh, lots of different links to Christmas tree syndrome and things like that. And we know that there are a lot of people out there with asthma or allergies who report symptoms from exposure to both artificial and live Christmas trees. Tell us, what's going on there? What's really causing their symptoms? Well, so we do not, we as the collective allergy community, do not like live Christmas trees, um, or for that matter, any other organic material in which you add water and allow mold and fungus to grow while it's sitting inside your house in the middle of the winter. Sounds pretty, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> part, of, part of the problem with, with live Christmas trees is that 
is just that. You're, you can get mold and fungus growth, and if you're allergic to mold, that's going to set you off. They, there also can be compounds that are released that can cause irritants if you sort of smell that mold smell as well. That could also trigger your asthma. So we don't like that. Um, and the trees themselves can bring pollen in with them that could be stuck on them from wherever they came from. So we don't like that either. Um, if you are going to use a live tree, we really want you to try and dry it out as much first before you bring it in uh, and clean it up as much. But we much prefer fake Christmas trees to live Christmas trees. Uh, but fake Christmas trees have their own problems as well. They can have dust. They can have, you know, it depends where you've stored them. Uh, they can have dust on them. They can also have other irritant effects as well. So they're not great. Um, if you have to pick between those, and uh, my, my favorite then is just get a menorah, but don't light the candles. See, that way you don't, or use electric candles. That way you don't have any exposure to any of the irritants uh, or allergens that would be associated with the Christmas trees. Now, it's interesting that that's a great explanation of things, but I didn't hear you mention actually the pine tree themselves, so the pine pollen. So why why is pine pollen actually not a big you know trigger for these folks? Well, so pine pollen is actually very heavy, and it usually falls to the ground. It's not something that's going to be that much uh, in the air, um, and it's not going to be that much of a problem for them to breathe in. Okay, so I think that's a, a big misconception that's floating around out there. Now, for those folks who are traveling over the holidays, do you have any uh, tips for people who may be staying at hotels? And what about flying on commercial airplanes? Yeah, so I, again, it depends what your triggers are, and you have to be cognizant of what they are. You, you certainly do not – so I, I'll talk about the hotels first, and then we'll talk about the planes. You, you, you do not want to stay at a hotel that allows that – in a smoking room, right? Most of the hotels – now have uh, non-smoking rooms or all non-smoking. You really don't want a, a room where somebody smoked because, again, those are the, that scent, that irritant effect is going to trigger your asthma. If possible, if you're dust mite allergic, you'd like to have foam pillows in the hotel room if, if you can so that you're not being exposed to dust mites. Again, I think it's, you know, be cognizant of your environment and make sure you have your medications and make sure you have your rescue medications with you as well. Uh, and then when I tell people if they're going to go into an environment where they know they're going to have allergen exposure, I often say take an antihistamine before you go into that environment. Uh, again, 45 minutes to an hour before if you know that. That's going to help prevent uh, the allergic response. Now, it's not going to help you with irritant exposure, but with an allergic response, it, it would. In terms of flying on airplanes, again, it's the same kind of rule. Uh, it, you know, Obviously, people are not smoking on airplanes, or at least they aren't supposed to be. But you could still be exposed to various different allergens on the plane. There may be uh, service animals that were brought aboard, um, so there's your dog or cat or maybe even peacock, I don't know, on board the plane that you, you'd be exposed to. Again, if you know you're going to be exposed to these kind of things, if you could take an antihistamine before. The other thing about airplanes is to remember sometimes people with sinus disease have problems with with the altitude and things like that. So the better controlled you are before you get on the plane, the better you will survive, if you will, the flight uh, without any, any uh, significant impact on your allergic disease. Uh, and that may mean in the case of somebody with severe allergic rhinitis that they take a decongestant before they get on the plane so that they don't have problems with equalizing as the plane goes up and down. But again, it's all about trying to be preemptive and know what your environment's going to be like so that you can take a antihistamine or decongestant if you need to before you get exposed, um, but more importantly that you try and avoid any of that exposure during that, that traveling time. 
Any recommendations for people in regards to their medications when flying? Um, should they keep it with them as they board the plane, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so my feeling on, on the medications is that they're sort of like lithium batteries, um, but they're not lithium batteries. Uh, but the idea is I would not put them – don't put them in your check luggage if you can help it, especially when we're talking about allergic rhinitis and asthma kind of stuff. Um, you want to have them with you. If you have a reaction, you want to be able to get to your reliever medicine. And if you happen to put it in your check bag or it's in the carry-on that got stuck under the plane, that's not going to help you. Um, so this is different than, say, the, the Simvastatin you take every day for your high cholesterol. I don't care if you stick that in the body of the plane because you're not going to need that acutely. But your albuterol is something you might need, so you want to have that with you. Or if you have uh, uh, you know, food allergies, you want to have your self-injectable epinephrine with you so you can get to it if you need it. Okay, excellent advice. Thank you. Now, we know that there are a lot of people out there that own pets, especially cats and dogs, and we know that you know, having cat or dog allergies is, is quite prevalent. If somebody who has cat or dog allergies will be visiting a home uh, over the holidays where those types of pets are present, what can they do to control their symptoms and make their visit more enjoyable? Not visit? No. <laughs> I guess that's not an option. Um, no, so I think, again, it's, it's knowing your environment. So if you know you're pet allergic and you're going to go into an environment where there's a pet, uh, I would be sure to take an antihistamine before you, you go there. I would do your best to talk to the host and see if it's possible to keep that, that furred animal out of whatever room you're going to be um, in. Uh, I, I, if you're staying there, you want that animal kept out of that room at all times and the door closed. Um, the other thing is if you, if you play with the animal or you interact with the animal, you, know, you can wash your hands, change your clothes, shower. That will reduce your exposure to, their, to the allergen. Uh, and then if, if you're just visiting, try and limit the amount of time you're in, in that environment with those, those furred animals because, again, it's the length of time you're exposed to the allergen that's going to drive your symptoms. And if you can take an antihistamine, be in and be out within an hour, hour and a half, you're probably going to be fine. If you're going to be stuck there for six to eight hours, you're more likely by the end of that going to start having symptoms. Uh, and, and you're going to know that. So you need to be able to get yourself out of that environment and be in a safe environment. Um, the other option with this with cats, I will throw this out, although no one will actually do that, uh, do this, is that if you do wash a cat regularly, that actually does reduce the cat allergen, um, and that would lessen that exposure. Now, obviously, if you're the person with the allergic disease, you don't want to be the one doing the washing, uh, and more than likely your host won't wash their cat, but it's something to offer them as a an alternative to make it a little bit better for your environment. Uh, the joke, though, that the allergists always say is that when we tell people to wash their cat, that it works because the cat runs away, not because it reduces the cat allergen. Or the flip side of it is that when you tell uh, a patient to get rid of their furred pets, they get rid of their allergists. So those are my two exciting jokes. Uh, <sighs> to which you're not laughing, so they're obviously not very good. But no, I think the key is to try and limit your exposure and make it clear. I mean, this is a life and death. It's for asthma, allergic rhinitis, maybe not so much, but for asthma, this is a life and death decision. And you wouldn't put yourself in a situation um, where you're at risk just because. And so I think the host has to understand that. So it sounds like knowing your own self, your own triggers, and your history, and really just communicating and preparing ahead of time. Um, great advice. Now, what about this notion of hypoallergenic cats and dogs? Can you can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, that's kind of like um, hypopregnancy. <laughs> well, at least you like that joke. Uh, so, 
it, it, so there are these ideas that there are certain strains, there's certain you can buy, I think. I don't know if they're still even out on the market. These hypoallergenic uh, animals, uh, that's really a misnomer. Um, the things to which people are allergic are, are proteins that um, the animals make, and even the, the commercially available, there was a cat that was made that, that lacked LD1. Well, that's nice, but, but there's still 40% of people are allergic to cat albumin. And so you really don't have the ability to get an animal that doesn't have allergens. Now, you can get animals that shed less and, and have less allergen theoretically coming off of them. But what I tell my patients in general is that they're, they're, they're furred pets. There aren't hypoallergenic versions of them. You treat them all the same. Assume the risk is, is equally great from all of them, and you'll probably be in much better shape than trying to get something that you might have shed a little bit less but still has the allergen there. Okay. Um, now, this has been a great conversation, and we've discussed multiple different aspects of asthma and environmental allergies, especially those pertaining to the holiday season. But, you know, for our last question here, I'd like to switch gears just a little bit, uh, because as you mentioned, much of the country and really the world this time of the year is, is colder temperatures outside. And there's a very specific condition that can cause people to be very uncomfortable if they have it, which is called cold-induced urticaria or cold-induced hives. Can you just spend a few moments talking about what that is and how it can affect people this time of year? Sure. So uh, you know what hives are. Well, obviously you do. But um, so the red swollen welts kind of thing that itch. There are people that when they're exposed to cold, they will get these. Um, and like you said, it's cold-induced. We call it cold-induced urticaria. The the key thing about them is that it's cold-induced. And so the the number one prevention strategy for this is to not allow exposed skin and things like that to get cold. And, and it matters that you keep yourself bundled up and, and keep yourself as warm as possible. I was going to say just move to the Caribbean, but I figured nobody would laugh at that joke, and nobody did. So anyway, <laughs> But it is really an issue of, of exposure. Um, and people who have cold disorder care will usually be able to tell you that. Uh, they'll notice that their problems are worse when it's colder outside um, or if they get in a, in a swimming pool and get out of the swimming pool and as their, their, um, the water is, is evaporating that they would have symptoms there. Again, it's, it's just a simple situation of just know yourself, like you said before, and, and know what you do. So if you do have that, I would you know wear a scarf. Make sure you cover up your skin. Limit the amount of times you're outdoors. Um, again, stay indoors as much as possible to keep warm. That's going to limit limit the amount of times you have your your hives. You know, can you use antihistamines to try and block it? Can you use prednisone? People do that. Really, though, the major thing again, it's like any of the allergic diseases. If you know what the trigger is and you can avoid it, that's going to prevent the disease. And for those uh, individuals that have cold-induced urticaria and symptoms when they're exposed to cold air, uh, what advice do you have for them if they want to partake in something like the polar bear plunge or if they want to go swimming in cold bodies of water? I would highly discourage them. There, there is nothing that I see is, is, is a benefit to that. I wouldn't treat them so that they can go jump in there and have hives. Um, again, I, I think it's you know knowing what it is, and it's sort of the same thing if somebody has – bad asthma that's triggered by cats saying that they want to go live in a, a cat house, um, it, it's just the wrong thing to do. So understanding one's condition and the, the, the factors that may make things even more significant, great. 
Now, Dr. Grayson, thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. I think this was a great conversation. I'm really hopeful that people will benefit, especially with our, our timely um, uh, production of this around the holiday season. Uh, before we say goodbye, is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I think that really covers it. I, I, I want to thank you, Dr. Stukas, and, and the Academy for uh, allowing me to sort of spout off on some of these topics, and I, I hope this has been of help to the listeners. No, I, I, I'm sure it will be, and thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. We hope that you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.